Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Friday morning show for you today, and we start with that shocking news from Premier John Horgan that he requires surgery for a growth in his throat. The biopsy surgery to determine if the Premier has cancer is being performed this morning. I've got Finance Minister Selena Robinson standing by to discuss this upsetting news first have a listen to john horgan here making the announcement yesterday a few months ago i felt a lump in my neck which led to a visit to my doctor and a series of tests over the past few weeks these tests have revealed a growth in my throat that will require surgery tomorrow morning any further treatment will be a result of pathology but i am confident that i will have a complete recovery Okay, Premier John Horgan announcing yesterday he requires that biopsy surgery to determine if that growth in his throat is cancerous. Don't forget, uh, the Premier is a cancer survivor. He had surgery for bladder cancer in 2008. That was successful. He was declared cancer-free. Let's discuss with my first guest now, BC Finance Minister Selena Robinson, and she is a cancer survivor herself, and I know she's a a close friend and confidant of of the Premier and the Cabinet. Uh, Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. Thank you for having me. All right, Minister, I know this is uh, troubling, difficult news for everyone in government to receive yesterday. Can you talk a little bit about um, how you received this news, how the, how the rest of the Cabinet was informed about this, and um, what, went, what went through your mind when you heard this? Well, well, it's always upsetting uh, when you hear the words, uh, you know, we, we found a growth, we found something that's not supposed to be there, and it may be cancer. Uh, so just... I think like any British Columbian who's been diagnosed with cancer and their families and their friends, um, it feels like a punch in the gut. Uh, um, and, and this was exactly the same for everybody uh, who heard from the, the premier that, uh, that it is a possibility and that he has to undergo uh, tests and a biopsy in order to make that determination. Yeah. Uh, having heard those words myself, um, it is always, um, you know, very uh, disconcerting uh, and, and, and worrisome. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that, about your own journey as a, as a cancer survivor, which you've uh, quite bravely spoken about in the past. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What did you go through there? For sure. Um, not unlike um, the Premier, um, I also felt a, a, a something, a, a, I called it pressure in my lower left gut that was not normal. It didn't feel right. Um, and I went to the doctor and they did a couple of tests and an ultrasound revealed a mass. In, in my lower left quadrant, they were exploring what that was, planning to biopsy it uh, with the size of about a tangerine, as they described it. Um, and they suspected it was a, a fibroid that had fallen off of my uterus and was just sort of floating. So I was going in to have a biopsy. And I just had the sense that whatever it was needed to come out. And I'd had my family. I was 42 years old. And I said, you know, just do with a hysterectomy. At this point, they didn't expect it to be cancer. They thought it was a fibroid. Uh, so I went in for what was to be day surgery to remove, uh, to have a hysterectomy, just the uterus removed. Um, and I woke up uh, with, after the anesthetic with a, 
a gastric nasal tube, which didn't seem right, given I was going for hysterectomy, and they said it was an intestinal cancer. Uh, they removed six inches of bowel. They removed other sundry parts that uh, there had been some metastases, and I was told that I now had cancer and I would be uh, uh, a patient of the cancer agency. And uh, from there, you know, went to the cancer agency. Uh, they have been monitoring me for 15 years, uh, and I have been on wow. a daily chemotherapy every day uh, for 15 years. Uh, the, good, the good news out of all of this is I learned back in June, and my oncologist said, um, I don't think you need to take this medication anymore. I don't believe that you have cancer. There's been no change given that we've reduced your medication over the years. Uh, and so I'm waiting for a six-month follow-up uh, later this year uh, to see if I am, in fact, uh, cancer-free. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible, and boy, that's a frightening journey you've you've been on there. And I'm glad to hear you've got some good news. If you go back to to 2006 when you first received this news, and I know that Premier Horgan had his bladder cancer two years later, right? Like, did did you have an opportunity to to talk to him about about these issues? Uh, for sure. I mean, the, the yeah. premier and I actually um, became friends back in 2000, and I want to say 12, when he urged me uh, to run in the 2013 uh, election. We actually became friends at at, uh, at a Great Big Sea concert in Newfoundland, of all places. <laughs> uh, and um, and so we did ha- talk about our you know a shared history. You know, like who are you? What's important? And um, you know, just knowing that you know we're both cancer survivors. Um, and that, uh, you know, I've lived with cancer. This isn't something that, that had sort of in my life had gone away. Every checkup is a reminder that you, you continue to live with cancer. And for 15 years, I have been, you know, a city councillor. I have been raising my children. I have become, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, an MLA uh, representing Coquitlam Millardville. I have been a minister with, you know, a number of portfolios. I'm now BC's finance minister. So in spite of a cancer diagnosis and living uh, with with daily chemotherapy, you know, I've been able to do everything that I've needed to do, that I've wanted to do, and that's because, from my perspective, and I know that the, the thousands of British Columbians who've been treated by BC Cancer Agency, we have some, you know, the best cancer outcomes right. in in the world, and and that's I think because of you know the people who live here, the scientists, the fact that we have you know good public health. The fact that we are uh, overall a healthy population where we when we find something that isn't supposed to be there, we go to the doctor and then, you know, the system uh, kicks into place to make sure that we get the supports and the care that we need. All of that is is because we live here in British Columbia. Speaking of BC Finance Minister Selena Robinson, it was interesting to hear John Horgan touch on some of these points yesterday in his announcement, uh, talking about the importance of early detection, screening and treatment. Uh, of cancer and and we don't know if this growth that he has in his throat will be benign or otherwise but everyone hoping for the best but early detection is always a a good thing right can you comment briefly on that like the importance of of screening uh, detection if you're worried about something get it checked out for sure. I mean, and we, we tend to only talk about, for example, you know, women and, and doing, you know, their own self-checks and d- doing mammograms and, and for men to absolutely get the prostate checked out. I know that that's really off, often a hard thing, but how important it is, uh, because the earlier you catch something that is growing that's not supposed to be there, the better the outcomes. We know that whether it's, you know, a mole that's changed shape or color or uh, just a lump bump growth that's just 
change that's new. I mean, I that was my thing. It was like I felt like something was in my gut. I, you couldn't feel it from the outside, but I just, when I would bear down, it was just like something's there. It just I'm feeling yeah. pressure that I'd never felt before. And it's because I did that. They found it right away. They said they saw it on an ultrasound. Uh, you know, the premier too, finding something on the side of his throat that, you know, on his neck that said, oh, this is really weird. I'm going to go have it looked at, allowed the medical professionals to t- to do a couple of preliminary tests to say, oh, wait, this needs to be looked at more closely. And that really is absolutely critical. Yeah, last question for you, Minister. We saw an outpouring of support for Premier John Horgan yesterday, including uh, nonpartisan from from all parties. Uh, across the aisle, doesn't matter which party you're in. Everyone hoping for the best here. Can you can you talk a little bit about the the positive feelings that people are sending to to this man today? Yeah, I, I again, I it's it's always um, I know that there's a cut and thrust of question period that people see, and and it it, it comes across as venomous, and and you know we're each battling, much like you would see, so for example, in a hockey game, going into the corners yeah. and working hard. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, we're all human. We all have families. We all have loved ones. We all want what's what's best for our community. And we all recognize that. The 87 of us who uh, are there representing British Columbians recognize that, uh, you know, we all um, have real lives um, outside of the legislature. And we all want people to be healthy and well. Um, And I I know that the opposition uh, members uh, that, that we all work with, um, all, all want the best outcome for John Horgan. Um, and it is really heartwarming to know that, that people, you know, are praying for him, if that's what, what helps, um, and yep. certainly holding him and his family in their thoughts. And that's what it means to be human, and that's what it means to really care for your neighbors. And uh, it's very heartwarming uh, to, to see it. And, uh, and I know all British Columbians join me in, in wishing him and Ellie and their, their boys, you know, a, a good outcome, and for all of us, you know, a good outcome. I think it's very well said. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The biopsy surgery tomorrow will reveal uh, what exactly we're dealing with. Uh, it, you're not supposed to have growths in your throat. Uh, that's the first order of business. Uh, the issue with respect to my neck uh, is benign, but in the investigation of that initial concern of mine, another concern was discovered. And that's uh, what we're dealing with tomorrow and we'll be dealing with going forward. But it is, uh, it is certainly treatable, as I've been told. And uh, when we get information from the pathology tomorrow evening, uh, we'll have a course of treatment. All right, Premier John Horgan, yesterday with that shocking announcement about the discovery of a growth in his throat, the Premier undergoing a biopsy surgery here this morning. Let's continue to discuss now with my guest, Dr. Rennell Myers, interventional respirologist and clinical associate professor at UBC. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Dr. Myers, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Mike. Can, can you talk in just general perp- uh, terms about the, the importance of, of a biopsy when you have a biopsy surgery here and there, there are cancer fears here? What, what, why is that a priority and then what would happen typically? Um, so the first step is if we have a suspicion of a growth that we are worried it could be cancer or malignant, the only way to tell with certainty is to take a small piece of that tissue, look at it under the microscope, our pathologists look at it under the microscope, and they will be able to diagnose that. Sometimes growths are benign, meaning they are not cancer, and sometimes they are cancer. But without a biopsy, it's very difficult to know with certainty. Right, right. I know that uh, you've treated a lot of lung cancer patients. Um, is, a, is a throat cancer typical, like similar to lung cancer in any way? 
No, I, it, it's not, unfortunately. Um, uh, it, well, both of the cancers can be related to tobacco use, um, no. and that's really uh, one of the only similarities. And one of the exciting news uh, or information about lung cancer is that we will be uh, starting a, lung ca- a provincial lung cancer screening program in 2022. And wow. Premier Horgan had announced that in September of 2020, which is really exciting because cancer screening programs are focused on well populations, so people who do not have symptoms, and that allows us to diagnose a cancer early. The earlier we diagnose a cancer, the earlier we can treat it, and the better the outcome a person will have. Yeah, that's very exciting news. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, the importance of early like screening, detection, treatment? Mm-hmm. If you can catch these, these things early, you have a much better chance, a better outcome, right? Correct. If you can, and if you can catch it early, ideally, a surgical resection will uh, be curative and we can mm-hmm. cure it. So for an example, if we look at patients with lung cancers, um, 80% of our population that have lung cancer are currently diagnosed at a later stage, either a stage three or a stage four. With When we start doing lung cancer screening with low-dose CT scanning, so a CT scan of your chest, we actually shift that population to now 70% of people presenting with a very early stage, which can be surgically resected and cured. Right. And um, the treatment, the cure, is the cure basically through the surgery or do you need follow-up treatment typically too? It depends on the size of the lesion. So it's the earlier we are able to screen and detect a cancer, the earlier you can resect it. And usually surgery is all that is needed if it is quite small. Depending on the cancer, depending on the stage, there can also be surgery combined with what we would call systemic therapies, which could equal uh, traditional types of chemotherapy via intravenous or immunotherapies. There's now targeted therapies. There's different therapies out there. We call it systemic if it's something that needs to be going through your whole body to treat the cancer. Right. Speaking to Dr. Rennell Myers, um, when we talk about the uh, the importance of that screening, can you talk a little bit about why you should not put something like that off? I mean, I recently got a notice in the mail uh, to go get a screening for a colo- colon cancer. Mm-hmm. And I finally got around to it uh, actually this week as it happened. And when I went into Life Labs, the nurse looked at the form and said, you've had this since June. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. I just, you know, I'm getting around to it. And she sort of gave me a bit of a look. You know, you should not put this off, right? Absolutely. You shouldn't. Yeah. So currently in British Columbia, we have breast, colon, and cervical provincial screening programs, and you will receive letters uh, to, to keep up with that. It is very important. What we have seen, unfortunately, through the pandemic is hesitation. So people are hesitant to come into the hospital for these screening tests. And I really want to encourage everyone out there to keep your screening tests uh, on time. Hospitals are safe places to be, and screening yeah. is very important. Just got a minute left here, Dr. Myers. You mentioned um, how tobacco use can heighten the risk of, of cancer. Uh, the premier is an ex-smoker. He, he quit smoking a long time ago. Uh, I know my dad died of lung cancer, and he quit smoking like 20 years before he died, though. Like, can you, If you're a smoker and you quit, does that reduce your risk of cancer but not completely eliminate it? Is that be fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to yeah. say. So we know yeah. that um, so quitting smoking is one of the most important ways to reduce your risk of cancer, many types of different cancers, not just lung or throat, but also uh, bladder cancers, cancer um, and gastroesophageal cancers. And um, 
unfortunately, the risk never completely goes away, but it certainly reduces, and especially if you've been um, tobacco-free for over 15 years, we start to see uh, a, a reduction in your risk. Dr. Myers, thanks for coming on with your expertise today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about bike theft in this city. It's out of control right now. There's so many bikes being stolen. My son came home from school a couple of years back, told me he forgot his bike at school the night before. I told him, I, it better be there. I hope it's there when you get back to school, but I had a bad feeling it won't be. And sure enough, he got back. Bike is gone. It doesn't matter. Like, he had a titanium lock, whatever. They're able to cut through it. Listen, these bike thieves, they'll take, if it's not nailed down, they can steal it. They can take the bike apart, you know, cut through locks, uh, cut into a secure, so-called secure locker, and they can steal these bikes. Unbelievable. And we've seen some really brazen bike thefts in this city this week, including that one the other night with that amazing security video of the guys with the glass cutters and the suction cups going through the front door of a place, Mission Impossible style, to break into a bike locker and steal a bunch of bikes. The good news there is the cops have uh, caught uh, the people there and their arrests there, and they got those bikes back, which which is great. But a lot of these bikes just go missing. You never see them again. Have a listen to this here now. This is Ovi Muhuti, who is the building manager where you had that like Ocean's Eleven style break-in to steal all those bikes the other day. Have a listen. And they came and they practically they removed the glass, this one. They took out all the trims around, they were prepared, they came with suction cups, they were prepared with bolt cutters as well, and they stolen six bikes. We tried to reinforce now all the entrance, we already ordered, you know, metal stuff, you know, metal sheets, we have to put bars everywhere, it's a cost for us, it's an, you know, it's an extra cost we didn't, we didn't think about it, we didn't plan for this year. Okay, let's discuss now what a great panel we've got for you. Jay Allard on the line. Jay is the CEO of Project 529. It's a company that builds software for cyclists and law enforcement. Jay, thanks for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Also on the line is Rob Brunt. Rob is the bike theft detective at the Vancouver Police Department. Detective Brunt, thank you for coming on today. Ah, Thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Rob, let me go to you first. Can you talk a little bit about bike theft in the city of Vancouver? How many bikes are getting stolen right now? Uh, actually, since we partnered with Jay and uh, Project 5 to 9 in 2015, our bike theft is down 44%. That's great. So, yeah, so we're looking at about 1,400 bikes right now as opposed to the trajectory we would have been on it had we not uh, partnered with 5 to 9 would have been about seven to 8,000 bikes reported stolen. Do you think there's a lot of bikes that get stolen that don't get reported? Yeah, we can tell from the app that uh, when we first started, it was something we've, uh, I think we've done a good job fixing in the department, but before uh, we could see for every 10 reports made on five to nine, probably only three or four of them actually got a case number as opposed to about six out of 10 now. So we're really mm-hmm. trying to push that to show the city a, uh, you know, what our real numbers are. Hey, Rob, when you see some of these brazen break-ins like we've seen in the past week, you know, guys cutting through windows with uh, with glass cutters and suction cups, uh, we saw another brazen break-in on a video last night on Global News, security video of a smash and grab. Guys break a window, go in, grab a couple of bikes and leave. I mean, that kind of stuff, 
a lot these bikes are expensive right like if they rip off these bikes i mean you're talking about some of these bikes are worth thousands of dollars correct absolutely absolutely that's the big thing now you think that back in maybe 1990 uh you know a nice mountain bike would be maybe i don't thousand bucks fifteen hundred dollars uh you know we have recoveries we recovered a bike in the downtown east side that was sixteen thousand dollars used wow you're talking that's right yeah, no kidding. Sixteen thousand. Well, let's uh, talk to Jay Allard now, CEO of Project Five Twenty Nine. Uh, Jay, tell me about this project. How does this work? Well, Mike, I got my bike ripped off and uh, went after the guy that ripped it off, and was just shocked to learn that um, you know the police were really limited in the tools that they had at their disposal uh, to to solve the crime, and also learned that you know the big big gap is that unlike any other vehicle you can purchase, you buy a plane, you buy a boat, you buy a car or a truck or a motorcycle, it's registered and we know who owns it. And bicycles are still kind of considered toys. And so that's really the Achilles tendon in this, you know, the Vancouver police. When I first met Rob, I saw 2000 bikes in the property room. All of them were going to auction because they didn't know who they belonged to. So we set out to solve that problem. Okay, how does Project 529 accomplish that? How does it work? Yeah, Mike, we just built a a little app. It's super simple. Um, We just take your email address. We don't want any information about the user. Uh, And then we just walk you through all of the key stuff to record about your bicycle, to make the model, the serial number. Uh, You take a few photos of the bike, and you basically build a little dossier for your bike. Um, You want to list that bike for sale? You got everything you need. That bike goes missing, and you need to contact insurance or the police. You do that, and if you're using 5 to 9, the bike goes missing, you can send out an alert, and that will notify other cyclists using the app within about a 10K radius uh, to be on the lookout for it. Okay, and how do they, like, is there a sticker applied to the bike or something, or some sort of identifying mark, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, we call it a 5 to 9 shield. Uh, you think about it as like a little baby license plate, you know, it's about the size of the, the bow tag that you put on your car's license plate, you put that on your bike, and that signals to would-be thieves, hey, this bike is registered, and over 30 departments in British Columbia can track down the owner. Um, Maybe you don't want to take this one. Uh, And it also signals to the police that, you know, they're overburdened. They're trying to do a lot of things. There are a lot of important crimes, more important than bike theft. But they can spot a would-be bad guy across the block there and uh, with a bike with a yellow sticker on it. They can say, hey, I know I can run that bike. Um, and things are a little suspicious over there, so we've given them another tool on the belt. Okay, that's really interesting stuff. Speaking to Jay Allard, CEO, Project 529, Detective Rob Brunt, bike theft detective at the Vancouver Police Department. So how if it, this program has worked well, right, Rob? Like, how, Can you talk a little bit about how effective it's been? Yeah, actually, Mike, it's been fantastic. And we can what we can see this year because of the COVID, you know, we had an increase to 300% riding increase for cycling in BC or in Vancouver. Um, and so we had all these extra people out. Um, so, you know, our numbers would have been catastrophic as, if we if we wouldn't have done something uh, like working, partnering with Jay. So, you know, you're talking probably three million over if we say the average bike is seven hundred dollars we're talking about three million four million dollars in in savings and in, in the, that we stopped uh, that that amount of bike theft right and are, is this pro is does this allow you to recover a bike like if you if you discover a bike with one of these stickers or badges on it you can then run it down you know it's stolen like how does it how does it work to to recover a bike and get it back to its owner 
Well, well you know, when you're talking to me and Rob right now, um, you know, we're not talking to the bike shops. The bike shops are a really key, uh, key ingredient in this as well, and they've partnered with us. So say a sketchy individual with a really expensive bike comes into a bike shop uh, for a tune-up, and the mechanic puts it on the, on the rack and says, this just doesn't look right. The mechanic can run the bike uh, on the system for free, uh, and it will alert them that it is, in fact, a stolen bicycle. And in one button, they can contact the owner and the police um, and reconcile the, the situation uh, without losing the bike back to the, the perpetrator. Okay, that's very cool. Detective Brunt, would you, if you get a guy, if a sophisticated bike thief, could they not easily figure out that, okay, the first thing I've got to do is remove this sticker or remove this badge? Like, are they easy to remove from the bike? Uh, they're n- they're not impossible to remove, but what will happen is you'll damage the paint or the clear coat, so it oh. makes it. Um, if you think of, I, I, you know, if you think of a val tag on a license plate, you know that's your insurance sticker. You know, yeah. it it'll come off, but it'll damage the license plate. So the five to nine shield is like that. It'll damage the bike if the thief tries to take it off, which which makes it even easier for us policing. You'll be like, you'll see the. You know, the remnants of the sticker and the paint chips missing, and you'll be like, okay, what's going on here? Oh, wow. Okay. So if I'll, you... I'll say it's a lot harder to get the sticker off than it is a license plate off a car. Oh, is it? Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, why is it? Has it got some high-tech glue on it or something? Uh, yeah, it's chemistry. It's a funny story. It's got really, really strong ink. It's got a really, really uh, thin and lightweight uh, material that the ink is printed on, and that uses a super strong glue. So the effect is... Uh, when you go to take it off, it chips away like eggshells away. And so you have to be pretty patient to get it off um, and pretty inclined to do so. And as Rob says, it, it leaves marks um, unless you really put a lot of time into it. And remember, Mike, it's not coming out of the system. Just like taking a license plate off a car doesn't mean the police don't know who it belongs to. Right. right. It just increases the suspicion in the situation. Right. So uh, really, the thieves use that indication as uh really just just to stay away from the bikes okay i I love it it sounds awesome and for people who are listening to this jay and i mean this program has been around for a while a lot of people are familiar with it but if people are not how can they get involved with this like is there a cost to register your bike with this system or or it's absolutely free to register your bike with five to nine um uh nationwide and uh, you can register on project five to nine dot com or you can download the 5 to 9 Garage app on Apple and Android stores. Okay, and Detective Brunt, would you, what percentage of bikes in the city are actually registered? Any idea? Actually, I, I can't tell you that, Mike. I'll, I can tell you that, you know, over six years when we do events now, when we're on the bike paths, you know, it almost looks to us like 40% of the bicycles going by have a shield on them. Um, okay. They're easy to spot. So um, definitely... There's been a huge uptake. What that number would be for the city for cyclists, I wouldn't have a clue. Hey, Rob, have you ever busted a bike chop shop? Like, I hear a lot about these that, you know, central area where a bunch of stolen bikes are brought in and chopped up and resold and who knows what else. Does that go on, like a chop shop? So what we've learned from using the app, Mike, is that the bicycles... Um, aren't valuable to the fence. If he's, if he's going to sell the bicycle, he wants it whole. So, you know, the, what, what we would call a chop shop isn't really a chop shop in the sense that they're dismantling the bikes. It's just not efficient. Uh, there's no money in it for them. But 
we have chop shops that have, you know, 200 bicycles in them. They look brand new. They've got, you know, all the knobbies on the tires aren't missing yet. They've, you know, they've been stolen quickly, um, you know, and, and they're in, uh, they're in mint condition. So that's what we've learned from the app um, is, is that our, what we thought was happening or, you know, I'd been on the street for 25 years beforehand. Um, and I would have said that, you know, a bicycle in Vancouver, if it's on the street more than two weeks, it's getting broken down. That's not what the app has taught us. The bikes are staying together. We have recoveries that are seven years old in mint condition. Wow. All right, welcome back to the show. My guests are Jay Allard, CEO, Project 529, Rob Brunt, bike theft detective, Vancouver Police Department, talking bike thefts in the city. Wes on the line in Abbotsford. Hi. Hey, guys. Great program. Thanks for taking my call here. Sure. I just want to talk about quickly. Um, so I bought and sold a lot of bikes over the last three years, and I want to highlight that I didn't do it because I'm trying to make money, it's, it's just a general progression of cycling. I got into it three years ago, you upgrade your bike, you try gravel bike, you try mountain bike. And so I want to make that note, but uh, I just want to say that when I'm going to look for a used bike, because that's my market, I can't afford new, having the badge on there, it just gives me a sense of security. Whenever I'm doing it without a badge, I'm really researching, hey, where'd you get the bike? What's the story behind it? I'm trying to figure out if this thing's stolen because I don't want to play in that. But when there's a badge there, it's been phenomenal. I have a sense of confidence with the register, and yeah. then the transfer, the transfer process. And for anyone who's listening, if you guys didn't highlight it, easy. Like you just send me an email. I got an email. Open an account. Now it's my bike under my name. If it ever okay. gets stolen, so okay, th- work. Um, thank you, thank you for raising a really good point, Jay. Can you talk about that? Like, what if you sell your bike? You transfer the ownership on the on the Project Five Two Nine site. Yep, it's simpler than transferring a car or any other vehicle. Uh, we've made yeah. it super one-click simple, and we actually record the history of all the owners. Uh, so in the event that there's a, a victim down the road, um, you know, we have the history on the bike, and that uh, the, you know, the, bad, the criminal that's taken the bike can't claim that they were anywhere in the chain of ownership. Okay, Dave on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Oh, hi, Mike. First of all, thanks a lot for covering all this you're doing on the crime in Vancouver, because I've lived here my own whole life and never been worse. Um, I've got I had I've had three different instances. I'll be quick. Three bikes, one e-bike. I was doing Uber Eats delivery. It got stolen. I saw the video of it in front of from the apartment building. Took the guy about 90 seconds with a disc sander to cut through my $120 lock, and then he just walked away with it. Uh, oh, my man. son's 16th birthday. Yeah, I bought him a bike. Stored it at my mother-in-law's place in West Vancouver just so he wouldn't see it. It was stolen overnight, but we got that back. They found it near Strathcona Park. The guy was a well-known criminal living in Strathcona Park. Third one, let my puppy out to go to the washroom. She didn't come back. Realized the gate was open, and then I realized my wife's bike was gone. So before work, first thing I did was I live in East Van. I drove towards Strathcona Park. Sure enough, I saw it lying in front of a 24-hour store. So I just grabbed it and threw it in my truck, and the guy comes out, and, oh, that's mine, and, yeah, I said, there's no way it is. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Told him that he, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's, it, luckily, we got two out of the three back. Unfortunately, the most valuable, you know, in yeah. monetarily and to our family was my e-bike, because we sold our second car so I could get to work and back, so that was frustrating. Okay, but, um, thank- My other thing, I did email you about, I did email about the chop shop. Maybe it's not a chop shop, but this guy's operating... He's selling a lot of stolen goods out of his motorhome on in East Vancouver, which I just don't understand how the police are letting it be going on. Thank, thank years you, now thank you, thank you for the call. Thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. We have more calls there. We simply can't get to. Uh, Thirty seconds, Rob Brunt. Is it easy to get through some of these high tech locks? Like if you got a titanium lock, they can still get through it somehow. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're just, all the lock is doing is buying you time. And I would say probably, you know, the best lock in the market, four minutes to get through with a grinder. Oh, man. Guys, you guys are doing an awesome job here uh, preventing bike theft and reuniting people with their stolen uh, stolen bikes. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. And as Rob was just saying, buy yourself a good lock, register your bike, and if it goes missing, tell the cops, and uh, they'll prioritize appropriately. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the wild world of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies now. My next guest was an early adopter of Bitcoin. He has a unique viewpoint on the early days of the cryptocurrency. He's just written a well-received new book on his crypto journey. It's called Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West. Ethan Liu, very pleased to welcome him to the show. Ethan, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thank you for being here. Ethan is a columnist with the National Post. He's a Canadian journalist, formerly with Reuters. And uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, it's, it's getting some really inter- great reviews. And I think it's just a fascinating viewpoint into the development of Bitcoin. Let's start, Ethan, with how you got into this. Like, when did you first uh, buy uh, Bitcoin? Oh, so this was in 2013. But between when I first heard of Bitcoin and when I bought it, that was a long journey. So when I first heard of Bitcoin, my friends and I were basically on the dark web and just basically for no good reason. It was our first time there. And I basically saw that those illicit marketplaces, they were buying and selling everything uh, with Bitcoin. And that was my second year of university. And it took a whole year from uh, when I first heard of it to when I bought it. Okay, so if you bought Bitcoin in 2013... Uh, how much was Bitcoin worth then when you first bought it? It was a thousand bucks. A thousand dollars. It was a thousand dollars a coin, and right now it's. Uh, I just looked it up here a short time. Isn't it around like seventy-seven thousand Canadian? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Oh my God. Okay, you must you must be rich. Uh, no, no. I I think rich is a subjective term. I think I have. Uh, probably as much money as a, as a lawyer who's about my age, probably about age 30, and not one of those fancy street people, but just like a moderately successful but unremarkable lawyer. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about your... Uh, you've had a really interesting experience here uh, in the early days of Bitcoin. So if we go back to when you first heard about Bitcoin and then you got into it, jumped in and bought some... Uh, you write about some of these early days, what they call a Bitcoin meetup, right? Like, what are these meetups, Bitcoin meetups? What are those? Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, yeah, the, the word is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, people uh, gather together and they talk about Bitcoin. And I think without the Internet, this thing would never have taken off. And I, I don't just mean using it for transactions, but to connect all these uh, people who are interested in this together. And they were happening on a very big uh, to a very big extent right and what were the what were those meetups like in the early days of bitcoin like when you go back to when you first heard about it and you first bought bitcoin years ago when you attended these meetups what were those like are they typically like young people getting into this yeah and uh so typically young and uh skews heavily male and these meetups uh, i don't think that's uh one word to describe them because they vary so much and uh Ethereum, that idea, that was, uh, it was 
followed by Vitalik Buterin, he brought it to the meetup, but it was through the meetup, I think, that Ethereum flourished. But also some of those meetups, at some meetups, people were selling outright scams. I went to one and the, there were people literally just quoting Bible verses, uh, lean to the Lord and trust, not, uh, trust in the Lord and lean not to your own understanding. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been lots of scams in the, in the cryptocurrency world for sure. Like you mentioned, Ethereum, and that's one of the that's one of the cryptocurrency platforms, right? Isn't that Ether? Isn't that what, isn't that what they call their coin, Ether? Oh yeah, absolutely. Ethereum's the platform. Ether's the currency. Right, and I think that's what second only to Bitcoin in terms of its size. Is that right? Yeah, that's, uh, and uh, I think lots of people forget sometimes that is uh, homemade. That is, I think, three out of eight co-founders were Canadian. Okay, let's talk about some of the characters that you met along the way and that you write about in your book, Ethan. And uh, let's talk about some of the people that, that you met. Who are some of the more interesting characters that you met in the, in the Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency world in the early days? You met a guy named, uh, is it Gerald Con- Conten? Who is this guy, Gerald Conten? <laughs> Yeah, you know, he, uh, at the time uh, when I met him, I thought he was uh, very inspiring, very uh, uh, on the up entrepreneur, a shining star. But eventually, uh, we, we now know him as the guy behind the Quadriga CX exchange platform. It utterly collapsed uh, after the news of his death. And I say news of his death because lots of people think he faked it. He was uh, accused of running lots of scams as a teenager and also taking users' money and using it the gamble on risky trades. Yeah, so this guy, like you said, he was, his death has been reported, but you know, I've read that this guy's considered kind of what, like the Elvis of cryptocurrency, like maybe he's still alive? Is, is that what people believe? <laughs> yeah, some people believe that uh, because I think uh, a couple of reasons. One is that when he, the place where he is reported to have died, it was it's very easy to, to fake a death. And also, he left a very detailed will. He left a specific amount of money to care for his two dogs, but he allegedly just did not leave his password to anyone. And and when you met that guy, what was it, what was the deal with him? Like which which cryptocurrency was he involved with? Oh, so back in the day, so I met him really early. So that was 2014, and he that was basically when he started Quadriga CX. And at the time, um, there were very few exchanges in Canada. If you wanted to buy Bitcoin, it actually wasn't that uh, as easy as now. So Quadriga was one of the main places. And I think everyone I know had an account on it at some point, even me. All right. Welcome back to the show. I'm continuing my discussion now with my guest, Ethan Liu. He's a reporter with the National, uh, the uh, Financial Post. He's the author of the brand new book, Once a Bitcoin Miner, Scandal and Turmoil in the Cryptocurrency Wild West, talking about the early days of Bitcoin. All right, Ethan, let's talk about some of these other interesting characters that you've met along the way in your, your cryptocurrency journey here. You, you met a, a notorious guy by the name of uh, Virgil Griffith, uh, who, and you met him, and did you, did you go to North Korea with this guy? T- tell me about that, this trip to North Korea that you did. Yes, yeah, so 2019, I was in North Korea with Virgil Griffith. So Virgil Griffith is a big shot in crypto. He runs uh, special projects at the Ethereum Foundation. And North Korea was holding a crypto conference, and we all went. And after the conference, 
Virgil got arrested for, uh, I wouldn't say allegedly, because he already pleaded guilty to uh, helping North Korea break sanctions through blockchain. And he, uh, he got a plea deal, six and a half years in prison. Yeah, and you covered that case, and uh, th- that's really interesting. I, I don't think I've I've talked to a few people who have gone to North Korea over the years, but not many. Really strange country. W- why were they interested in uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency back then? Were, were they were they hoping to use cryptocurrency to like get around san- international sanctions and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I I think there was a bit of hope in that uh, in North Korea because. Those sanctions are quite crippling to the economy, and crypto being outside the traditional financial system is uh, theoretically a way out of that. And North Korea has been accused of doing lots of shady stuff with crypto, but I don't think that conference was an example of how North Korea was using crypto. That that was probably just a sideshow, and I think Virgil, uh, wrong place, wrong time for him. Okay, you write extensively about all this stuff, all these adventures you've been on in your book. When, when you take a look at the, the current kind of landscape for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, what can you say about that? Like when, when you tell your family and, and friends that you've got an interest in cryptocurrency, you bought Bitcoin, like do they think it's a, it's a crazy thing to put your money into, that it's speculative, that it's some kind of bubble that's going to burst or... Do you think people are still buying Bitcoin as an, an investment? Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, I think for my parents specifically, I think in the beginning, 2013, they definitely did not get this. But uh, I think over the years, they've come around, and especially after I've given them crypto. So uh, the, I gave them crypto back in 2013, and it, it has risen a lot in value since then, and they have uh, come to see it my way. And I think... If you look at what's happening in the world right now, Salvador has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. So I think there's, there is definitely going to be a future in which this is more integrated in our lives. Yeah. What about the uh, it's been a, like a roller coaster ride for the value of Bitcoin up and down. I mean, when you go back to the early days of Bitcoin, when, when you first bought Bitcoin at a thousand bucks a coin, I mean, they went through, I'm sure it went up and down, right? Didn't it crash and then come back and then crash again? Yeah, it actually crashed right after I bought it. And uh, <laughs> um, more than 50%, like almost immediately. And I, at one point I was thinking, what the hell was I doing? Yeah. Yeah, but did you you hung on to it though, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I, I hung on to it. And you know, there's a, there's a, I think there's a common saying in uh in the, in the crypto world, that the real question is, isn't whether it'll go from like 10,000 to a million, it's whether it'll go from a dollar to, to 1,000. In the early days, yeah, that, that, that was the test. I think if you pass the test of the early days, the future is a lot brighter. Right. And when you take a look at the current, what, what would you say about the current sort of cryptocurrency landscape in Canada right now in, in terms of the public perception of it and the media's coverage of cryptocurrency? You write a cryptocurrency column for the Financial Post. Uh, what do people? What do you think is the Canadian attitudes toward Bitcoin and cryptocurrency generally in Canada right now? I mean, is it still considered kind of this crazy speculative thing that people should avoid, or do you think it's becoming more a bit more respected? Yeah. So um, I, I, I read a statistic one point. At one point, the Bank of Canada was doing this survey, and the proportion of Bitcoin holders in Canada was growing really quickly, and. Uh, the fastest growing age group was actually among the people 50 and above. And I, I think uh, more and more people are getting to know it. And more and more, it's also 
shedding its uh, bad reputation that it has uh, had from the early years. Yeah. The title of your book is Once a Bitcoin Miner. Is that something you were into as well, mining Bitcoin? Yes. I, I, I ran a, a mining facility at one point. It was housed out of a coffee warehouse. Or warehouse and that was, a, that, that was an interesting time, and that was an enjoyable experience. How, how did that work out for you? Uh, well, I think part of the reason why I did that was uh, to in order to immerse myself in that to write this book. And ultimately, uh, as I was wrapping up the book, I, I wrapped that up. But uh, I still hold the Bitcoin. What do you say to people who, you hear this a lot, that crypto cryptocurrency, this thing, it's a scam. You know, it's created out of thin air. It really has no real intrinsic value. What do you say? Like, I'm sure you hear that a lot. What do you say to that when people make that criticism on, on cryptocurrencies? Oh, uh, I, I have a story to say to that. So I heard this story, true story, uh, when the fall of Afghanistan came and refugees were trying to leave and they often, they're not able to take their money with them because of how bad the financial infrastructure is, how bad the currency is. They be penniless and I think we don't talk about that enough. But there was this young woman who had Bitcoin and perilous journey for her out of Afghanistan. She crossed Turkey and Iran, a ship sank in the Mediterranean, but she had two Bitcoins because she was able to memorize her passphrase. And effectively, she carried it in her head and uh, she was able to start a new life in Germany. And I think uh, that underscores the value proposition that uh, a lot of this financial infrastructure we take for granted, but we forget how fragile it is. All right, speaking to Ethan Liu about his uh, new book on the early days of Bitcoin, the infancy of Bitcoin and, and the mania around cryptocurrency and where it's heading into the future. What is hot kind of in, in Bitcoin right now or cryptocurrencies right now? Like, do you think that we continue to see, you know, continuing media, mainstream, more and more mainstream media coverage of Bitcoin, including your column in the Financial Post? Where do you think uh, Bitcoin is headed right now in terms of in Canada? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, depending on how you define Bitcoin, if you're looking at the entire cryptocurrency space and depending on how you define cryptocurrency, I think uh, uh, digital currency from the central bank, it is coming. The Bank of Canada recently made a very significant hire in this respect. And uh, one day we will see that Bank of Canada coin. Well, you think the Bank of Canada will issue a cryptocurrency, crypto coin? Uh, well, a digital asset. I, I think, uh, you know, some people, they have specific definitions for cryptocurrency, but uh, it's something in, definitely inspired by cryptocurrency. Right. Can you, uh, can you buy your book with Bitcoin? <laughs> My next column is actually on that. So I, I tried really hard to make this happen and, uh, Long story short, the answer is yes. So there is a shop in Regina called QuickBit that allows you to do that. Okay. Uh, last question for you, for you, Ethan. When you take a look at uh, where cryptocurrencies are right now and you compare it to the early days when you first got involved in it, what do you think is the biggest change? Uh, the biggest change, I think, is the mainstream recognition for it. Uh, yeah. I, when I first started writing about crypto, a uh, 400-word story, I had to spend 200 words explaining it. 
But now when you see a crypto story, uh, you can introduce Bitcoin without explaining what it is because people already know it. Ethan, it's been interesting talking to you. Good luck with the book. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.